When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast on this most glorious of Monday mornings. Matt is here. Hello, Matt. Hello. Sorry, that's all I've got. (laughs) (laughs) Great chat, Matt. Good job. David is here as well. Hello, David. Oh, I've got lots of chat. I've got lots of chat. I've been to another country and uh, it was marvellous. And I've been watching tennis in the middle of the night still. So not everything's (laughs) changed. (laughs) <laughs> but it's been marvellous. And now I've got loads of energy to just uh, take over the show with. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, David, that energy is going to be wasted because nobody from Solihull has done anything of any note this week. Oh, no, that was you, a bit you missed ill-timed. Your oh, mm. I couldn't believe it. I'd got all these Did- takes. <laughs> okay, I- I'm going to award you 30 seconds now for your Solihull Dan Evans takes. Because Matt's got no chat today, apparently. So <laughs> here you go. <laughs> Well, it was a long time coming, Dan, to be quite honest, and you've managed to time it for exactly when I wasn't around. So thanks a bunch. Um, Those are David Law takes, David, David, not Dan Evans takes. Yeah. Oh, well, he's he's good, isn't he? He's he's actually better than I thought he was. And then he went and lost in the first round to somebody I'd never heard of. So um, maybe we're just about back where we started. (laughs) Yeah, but players, I mean, he wasn't alone, at least, was he? Players that had been successful the week before did struggle in Canada last week. So maybe we'll grant him a free pass on that. He, um, Apart he from plays Alex Renzo Mazzetti later, doesn't it? Apart from Alex, OK, well, Sorry. you're going to be fun today, aren't you, Matt? <laughs> Matt with the facts to ruin our fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of Alex de Menor chat coming up in today's pod. Finalist, of course, in Toronto. We will wrap up all the action that we've seen since Thursday in Toronto and Montreal and look ahead to Cincinnati, which, of course, tennis being tennis, has already started. Matt, this time in seven days, we will be T minus 24 minutes away from takeoff 
for New York City. Got anything to say, say about that? Any chat on that? Uh, I would say that we are we're planning another departure lounge pod, aren't we? And and we've, we are. We've done some learning from the last time we did one of those, where it was a very very stressful upload experience walking through Gatwick Airport, trying trying desperately to get on some sort of 4G or 5G or Wi-Fi so that we could transfer a file over to David. We did it with seconds to spare. Uh, this time, In the boarding queue. Yeah, this time we're planning to get there earlier and record in a in a stress free environment. That's the plan. Hashtag learnings. Mm. Hashtag learnings. Yep. Uh, all being well. This time, seven days from now, we'll have recorded our Monday pod and we will be once again in the boarding queue for our flight to New York City for. The 2023 US Open and the tennis podcast today is brought to you in association with the US Open Tennis Championships. Should we should we be calling it that? I, I, Have I been calling my, it the wrong name all, all these years? May, maybe we've been sort of short forming it all this time, you know, yeah, and okay. uh, here we go. Doing the it US Open, the US Open is one of the world's highest attended annual sporting events and renowned for providing fans with an unparalleled experience, equal parts sport and spectacle. In 2023, the US Open celebrates 50 years of equal prize money for men and women tennis players. In 1973, the US Open became the first of the four Grand Slam tournaments to offer equal prize money, a pioneering move that shook the sport and began to reshape it towards a more equitable future. And by the way, the poster for this year's US Open is a celebration of the 50 years of equal prize money and it is Billie Jean King themed and it is epic and I'm already planning where in my flat I will be placing the the framed 2023 US Open poster that I'm planning to buy. That's such a good idea. I, 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 I'm going to do. I'm going to get everything they've got <laughs> with that with that image on it because yeah. it is amazing. I agree. It's really really cool. The poster this year. I mean, obviously we we were going to love a poster that celebrates the 50 years of equal prize money, but it is aesthetically excellent as well. They really have done a cracking job. Uh, the main draw for this year's US Open takes place August. 28th to September 10th, so it's just two weeks away now. Before even then, the US Open kicks off with Fan Week, which begins Tuesday, August 22nd, and runs to Sunday, August 27th, uh, or 27th, rather. Uh, You can get in free for any of the six days, and there'll be some amazing tennis, star-studded events, and activities for all. There are also ticketed, featured events during Fan Week that you won't want to miss. Stars of the Open on Wednesday, August 23rd will feature exhibition matches including defending US Open champion Carlos Alcaraz, Alina Svitolina, Francis Tiafo, Maria Sakkari, Chris Eubanks, Jessica Bagula, Matteo Berrettini and oh, Bianca Andreescu's on this list. But um, spoiler alert for some, for some news that we'll be bringing you later. I rather suspect Bianca Andreescu will not be on this list next time we read it out. But anyway, John McEnroe is still on this list for the retro lovers amongst you. Uh, Flavours of the US Open, the US Open's signature culinary event is back on Thursday, August 24th. And will offer attendees a wide range of food and beverage offerings coupled with celebrity chefs 
and top tennis talent on the court. To learn more about everything happening at the 2023 US Open, visit usopen.org. Right then, let's head to Montreal where Jessica Begula is the champion. She beat Ludmilla Samsonova 6-1, 6-love in the final. A Look, an incredible performance from from Jessica Begula. The same can be said of her whole week. The final itself, a diminished spectacle. In fact, the whole final day's tennis in Montreal, a diminished spectacle because of rain, quite frankly. Um, we had the semi for the second semi-final between Samsonova, Samsonova and Rabatkina being played earlier on the Sunday and then after suitable rest, the winner of that, Samsonova, uh, coming back to play Pagula, who'd made her way through to the final the day before. And the whole thing felt, from from the moment that, that first semi-final, this, the, the semi-final on finals day, the Samsonova-Rabakina match, from the moment that got going and felt weird, I kind of had a sense of doom about that whole day's tennis. I kind of had a whole... I had a sense that it was going to be defined, not just the fact that that somebody was going to have to play two matches in one day, but the inequality of it, the fact that Pegula had booked her place in the final nearly 24 hours before, and it just always felt like it was going to be bad as a spectacle for the neutral and... Let's be honest, David, it was quite bad as a spectacle for the neutral, both those matches in different ways, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so excited to be back from holiday and able to watch these matches live. Certainly, I, I mean, I didn't I didn't watch the, the final on catch-up, but the, the semi played on final day with Rebecca and Samsonova. I tuned in, I, I sort of planned my cooking around it so that I could watch all of it while, while I was doing my cooking. And it was it was a horror show, really, of a match from start to finish because neither one of them played well at the same time. And Rebecca was good in the first set. Samsonova looked completely overwhelmed by the occasion and lost it 6-1. And then three double faults, I think, in the first game of the second set from Rebecca and her serve. I, I was listening to your chat the other day where you referenced, Matt, that she'd had her serve broken 10 times and still won a match and you know how, how can that be how, how can she still be in the tournament and her serve was all over the place but I was sort of in denial in the early stages of that first set Catherine you talk about the 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 feeling of doom really that's what was was everywhere that was what was in the atmosphere because everybody knew it's not fair this shouldn't be happening I mean it is tennis it is what happens when there is rain at tennis sometimes but it just feels terribly inadequate and and unsatisfactory. Um, and poor old Rebecca, who'd been playing these terribly late night matches. She had this incredible match against Daria Kasatkina, which was of an exceptionally high quality, but finished at three in the morning. Then she's having to wait all day for this, this semi-final to happen that doesn't. And that is tiring in itself, isn't it? Just sitting around trying to... Do, are we going to play? Are we not? And then this final day takes a bit of the gloss off the achievement for Jessica Pagula, which is unfair to her as well. So it's just a bummer, really, the whole thing. Yeah, bummer, Matt. That that just about sums it, sums it up, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think Pagula 
referenced that in in her press conference and kind of in her reaction, I think, immediately to winning that title. You know, this was a huge moment in her career, her second Masters 1000 title. And immediately afterwards, I think actually her thoughts were kind of with Sam Sonova because she she recognised that it, it kind of wasn't a fair fight in that final uh, with with Sam Sonova having just played played her semi-final. Uh, the emotion eventually came out and Pagula, I think, recognised it. it was a big moment for her as well. But yeah, she said in her press conference, it was unsatisfactory. I would like to have played her on on sort of equal footing and and we could have gone from there but yeah really the the sort of doom and gloom started as as David said a few days before with that day where there was where there was uh rain and they were having to play catch up and they had to play three night session matches effectively well perhaps they didn't have to but they chose to play three night session matches and that meant that Rebecca Kasakina came on court at about quarters of midnight I think and it was almost three o'clock in the morning by the time they finished and Rebecca was pretty outspoken about that in a way that some players are often not you know some players talk about 3am finishes oh it's just a fact of tennis um, I think more and more players are speaking out against that and Rebecca said that this poor leadership in the WTA was was the statement that she said, and that they they need to do something about that. You know, it needs to be it needs to be a red line. We cannot be playing matches that late. And I think she felt like even though she got through that match, her tournament was kind of ruined. She had no chance afterwards of actually going on and being a meaningful contender. And we saw that in her performance against Samsonova. And I think Samsonova herself had already played two matches on one day prior to the finals day having to do that as well so a sort of excessive workload on on two days it was just it was just all a bit of a mess and then it was that side of the draw that was really affected whereas whereas Jessica Pagula sort of kind of just sort of coasted well not coasted through she had very difficult matches that she had to come through but managed to avoid all of that drama and then had much more left in the final and and played a pretty perfect performance against a, a weakened opponent. I wonder if um, Rabatkina's strength of feeling about the subject and willingness uh, or keenness to speak out about it was crystallised or formulated during the experience she had in Rome with uh, the final there against Angelina Kalinina ending up being played, I mean, not as late as as the quarterfinal in... um, in Montreal, but after a whole day of delays, I think it ended up going on court about 11pm after men's semi-finals. Absolutely nobody in the crowd. It's damp. Uh, Kalinina ends up uh, retiring mid-match, suffering from sort of stress-induced injury, I believe. Um, you know, the biggest biggest match of her career and having to, to wait around all day. And then Steve Simon is there for the presentation and... There's booing. There's booing throughout the presentation. It's unclear who the booing is for, um, but it's all just horrifying, really. Deeply uncomfortable and unsatisfactory for absolutely everybody involved. And I don't think you need to lay blame at anyone's feet. Obviously, I know that uh, nobody can control the weather. Um, I increasingly do think tennis tournaments without roofs are maybe not viable. Um, but that's not an issue that can be solved overnight. But 
it just shouldn't be happening. Tennis just needs to get together and agree this can't happen. Doesn't matter whose fault in it, who's to blame. We need to have some red lines in place here as a sport to prevent this from happening. Curfew, red line for times matches can can go on court. Obviously, you can't anticipate how long a match is going to last for, but matches shouldn't be going on in in at a time when you know they there's zero way it can finish before midnight unless a player gets injured. That just shouldn't be on the table for the sport, I don't think. Well, I, I agree. And I think now the upside to the extension of these tournaments with Canada and Cincinnati going to be joining Madrid and uh, Madrid uh, Madrid and Rome as being these two-week long events like Indian Wells and Miami are as well. The upside is that you, you're going to have more days to play with and it will be absolutely unacceptable if they are not able to, to implement like they did in Rome, that exact David. rule. Well, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's unacceptable not to use those days in that way. But But they're not. They're not. The, the, what the two-week events are doing is extending week one. They're still, generally speaking, stacking stacking week two. Um, well, I just don't think that, that, that they can no longer have any excuse about the weather. They, they can, I will just hammer them every single time for, without any uh, type of caveat whatsoever now. If if that continues with these longer events, because they've got the time built in to these long winded, meandering, when will it ever end tournaments, which is something I don't particularly look forward to, really, having experienced it in from Madrid and Rome this year. But I understand that they're doing it. That's that's going to be the reality. OK, or well, what's the upside? That's one of the upsides. It It should be at least. And uh, because I do, I do really sympathise with organisers in Montreal trying to just get their tournament played in that in those in those conditions. It's a bloody nightmare, and I feel terrible for for Rebecca. Now. You know, she's she's come away from that event probably having had just a really miserable experience and really potentially damaging her whole summer. Because I'm not, I, I don't think you come back from a week like that with a click of the fingers. Yeah, and uh, look, the last time she was physically right was was Rome wasn't it the start of start of Rome she suffered from that virus uh Roland Garros she we don't think she was quite we don't think she's been quite right all summer and I'm not suggesting that's direct cause and effect but it is not good for tennis players in an already a sport that is demanding these players to be absolutely physically relentlessly at their limits it is not good for tennis players to be sitting around all day, not knowing when they're going to get on court for one of the biggest matches of their lives, experience that kind, experiencing that kind of bodily stress, continually warming up and then unproductively warming up. It's, it's, no, it's no good. I don't... I, it's, it's no good for anyone. Um, let's talk about the positives. An incredibly positive week for Jessica Pagula. Um I don't I don't read massive amounts into the final but I do read a lot into previous matches that she played in the week particularly of course her victory over Iga Swiatek in the semi-finals over Coco Goff in the quarterfinals um she was awesome all week but awesome in a very Jessica Bagula way I noticed Christopher Clary formerly of the New York Times on Twitter um 
explaining a bit to a couple of people in his mentions that were querying how on earth Jessica Bagula is at the ranking she is and having the success that she is when her game looks on the face of it so unspectacular relative to the the others around her in the rankings and it it is a less spectacular style of play there is it requires more nuance I think to analyze um, exactly what makes her so good and it requires some really unsexy language like precision and clever tactics you know the there were some really interesting stats um, on Saturday subsequent to the or during the Pagula Shviontek match about how many fewer forehands Shviontek was hitting in that match her tactic you know she got a good backhand but so much of Shontek's brilliance is she kind of always has the shot and the ball that she wants to hit. People, players, opponents find it really difficult to make her uncomfortable and she wasn't able to hit the shot that she wanted wanted to hit a lot of the time on Saturday, which is that forehand, particularly the first shot after the serve. She's got an incredible knack of getting that ball on the forehand and taking immediate charge of the rally. And Jessica Pagula with her precision and depth, was preventing her from doing that, both in the return games and on the serve with her incredible precision on the serve. And I know these are unsexy words. It's a lot easier to talk about Alcaraz tweeners, isn't it? But I've got so much time and respect for the way that she is making herself a factor at the top of tennis. If it hadn't been for Cotton Eye Joe, <laughs> can we talk about that? Because that was my favourite moment of the week. So it's made my no, favourite moment of the I just did a load of, of analysis and you're talking about a one-hit wonder from the 90s. <laughs> I think it's right, off you go. very relevant to the Jessica Pagula story this week. Hang on, I'm doing the hardcore analysis and you're talking about Cotton Eye Joe. What, what sort of vortex have we entered? <laughs> The problem is that song is now just going to be associated with Jessica Bagula forever. And I hate that song. Do you? I, I, I secret, it's, it's a guilty pleasure song for me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it that, is awful. It is objectively awful. I think that's why it was so funny. It was that song at, at a crucial moment in the second set tiebreak against Igor Sviantek. And the other stat that came up on the screen during that match was that points won since Cotton Eye Joe. And it was... <laughs> It, it was Igor Sviantek. When, when, when did it come on? 12 it out of 12. Mid-rally, mid right? It was mid-rally uh, in the second set tiebreak. And it came on when the ball was in mid-air. And I must say, Sviantek hit an absolutely astonishing sort of forehand smash uh, just as it came song, on. Matt. <laughs> and And then... Obviously, the rally had to stop, and Chichak, the umpire, was like, uh, a sound system, can we please sort that out? It's such a, <laughs> like, there's no um, there's no slow intro to Cotton Eye Joe, isn't no, there? It, it comes just goes right in, in with the, that singer's extremely irritating vocal. Mm. Um, there's no soft launch. Yeah, so, you know, Pagula tailspinned after that she, she she literally lost 12 points in a row after that song came on and ended up a breakdown in that third set hang on and yet you're suggesting she might not have won without cotton eye joe no i don't think i said that oh okay i'm saying it's it was a it was, big 
it was a big moment for her to be able to sort of right. get the match back on track after Cotton Eye Joe had absolutely torpedoed her big win over Igor's fiance. <laughs> you know? Okay, well, I'll ask the question then. Would she have won without Cotton Eye Joe? <laughs> yeah, I think she might have won in two sets. Like, I know she was a mini breakdown in that second set tie break, but she was awesome in this match. I mean, I'll, I'll now go into some tennis analysis if... Finally, after after 20, 20 minutes of questionable contributions from me on this podcast, um, she broke she broke Shontek's serve eleven times in that match, and four out of four in that opening set. And we have spoken all year about that being a an area of Shontek's game that you have to target. And it was it was Pagula at United Cup when she did it there, that made me realise that you really can attack Sviontek's serve, and in particular her second serve. And Pagula did that better than I've seen anyone do it. Maybe Rabatkin at Indian Wells was was just as good, but Pagula in Montreal this week, absolutely brilliant. As you said, taking control of the rally straight away off Sviontek's own serve. Um, and she's also got so many, so many sort of, little subtle layers to her game Pagula that I think are underrated like her slice backhand I think is underrated her hand skills around the baseline the way she can pick the ball up and sort of half volleys her movement I think is is really underrated it's not it's not the most dynamic movement but she gets a lot of balls back and defends really well and these these little incremental improvements are adding up to a player who you know in her words I win a lot of matches. You know, I think she's very aware of, of people saying, well, what is her game? And she's like, well, this is my game and it works. And I win a lot of matches and I'm constantly getting to the latter stages. And it it doesn't feel to me like she's got, she's got a bit of a Grand Slam quarterfinal problem. You know, that's a hurdle that she still needs to overcome. But it, I don't get the same experience watching her late in big matches as I do watching Maria Sacri where it feels like there's a lot of stress it feels like it feels like Pagula has lost some big matches simply because the opponent has played better whereas I feel like Sacri has sometimes sort of let herself down in those matches with with her performance um but Pagula now has beaten Coco Goff and Igor Svantec this week and she, she she feels again going into the US Open like she did going into the Australian Open at the start of the year where she's got a big win against Fiontech and you can't you can't ignore that. I know slams are different, but that was huge for her to get that win, especially in those circumstances. And I'm sure we'll be having US Open mixed chat at some point. But Pagula, for me, feels like she might be in it now with the tennis she's playing. Which is a really tricky one for me because I, I I agree with everything you've just said, Matt. And yet I picked her for the Australian Open on the basis of those United Cup performances and and all all subsequent analysis. And I I got I got burned. Um, so am I ready to be hurt again? <laughs> the, the the fundamental predictions question. I don't know, David. Well, I. I would take issue with Matt a little over the comparison with Zachary because I think she's got a bigger problem than than that suggests and that it's not just about opponents. I think the last couple of times she's had real chances and she should have pressed them home. She should have converted one of those. 
And I think because her demeanor never changes and she doesn't look like she's stressed as such, maybe maybe we don't label it as in the same way. Um, and I think what she does incredibly well is gather herself from those disappointments and come again for the for the run of the mill tour. It, it never seems to tailspin into a problem at the next tournament. It's it's, it's a grand slam problem. Um, but but I think she's got some work to do to convince that that she is going to be able to handle the moment and deliver. You know, you've got a you've got a peek at these things, haven't you? And I suppose that's what you're you're getting at is other people are peeking at the Grand Slams at those stages when she is not. She's still maybe staying the same level or or actually diminishing a little. I think she's she's got to find something, uh, and and has yet to do it. And and I I still he wonder whether. Yes, I, I do. I, I, I do. But I think some of it, to go along with what Matt is saying, is somewhat draw dependent. Because if she's going to, if she runs into one of the the top three or four when they're playing their best, I just don't think she's good enough then. But she's had a. I can't remember who she lost to now at the French Open and at Wimbledon. Um, Wimbledon was Vondrosheva. Wimbledon was Vondrosheva, and, and that was a match where. The roof closed and Von Drosheva suddenly started playing really, really well mm. under the roof. I remember. I, I covered that, Matt. And I, I, did, I did cover that match for BBC Radio. And I just feel like you've got to win that match if, if you're hurt. I know, I know the woman went on to win the title. I get, I get that. And it's Von Drosheva and she can do that. But I still feel like as a numbers game, if you end up playing Azarenka and Von Drosheva, and not Svantec, Rybakina and, and Sabalenka, you've got to take one of those. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think, I think the Australian Open one is the one that I would point to as that was a match where Pagula didn't play her best level at all. Mm. Um, that was disappointing. I think she was disappointed. I think the Vondrosheva one was weird. I mean, she, she missed a backhand to go 5-1 up in that, in that third set, granted. But after that, Von Drosheva played fantastic tennis, you know, tournament-winning tennis, as we now know. I don't think Pagula did too much wrong in that in that third set against Von Drosheva. But I agree, you know, cumulatively, she's had a couple of chances now against players that aren't Sviontek and Rabatkino and Sabalenka. But I don't know. It 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 doesn't it doesn't feel to me like she's really dropping her level in these matches. I think she's maybe not finding her absolute top level and she needs that top level to win. But there was something about the way she recovered against Fiontek in that third set. You know, she was 4-2 down in that third set against Fiontek and won 16 of the last 19 points. Blazing forehand winners a lot of the time. Yes, Fiontek maybe started overhitting and missing a little bit, but it was seriously good from Jessica Pagula. And... I think she's in that spot where I don't know whether I'll pick her to win, but I don't think I'd be surprised if she does win because she's her level is consistently great right now. I also think significantly she's she's not got any um, specific issues with the big three. She's beaten them all. She's got winning head-to-heads against Rabakina and Sabalenka. Um and she's she's beaten Svantec as as world number one twice now. 
Um, and okay, some people have caveats over against asterisks against that win she had at, at the United Cup. The, the Polish team had had travelled, hadn't they, from Perth the, the day before? But but mentally, she's beaten Iga Świątek twice this year. Um, and I, I think those things are really significant. I remember watching uh, her match against Rebecca in Miami, Pegula. And look, she ended up losing that. But I was really struck by how that that matchup c- kind of worked for Pegula. She was able to play her best tennis. I, I thought she might get blasted off the court ahead of that match. I remember previewing it on Amazon. I wasn't quite sure what it was going to look like. And it actually looked looked pretty okay for Jessica Pegula. I don't think she has the... I'm not... I'm not waiting to see how the draw shakes out in the way that I am with Coco Goff, for example, because I see Coco Goff in Iga Shiontek's section of the draw and I kind of go, well, it doesn't matter how well you're playing then. I don't feel that way for Jessica Pegula with, with any... I don't, I don't think there's anybody she can't beat if she brings her best. Mm. Um, but bringing her best at a slam when it matters most is... is what we're yet you, to see, but I, I suspect you, you it might back be in there. Her, you'd back her best over the other three? No, even no, if, but I think it's possible. No, no, of course not. I'm backing the big three. They're, they're the best right. three tennis players in the world, I I believe, and they've been there and done it at slams, all three of them, and that is extremely significant. But I see Coco Goff to face Iga Svantec in a quarterfinal, and I just feel like I yeah. just cancel the match. You know, um, and I hope that that will I hope that will change as as time goes on. But I'm worried about that head to head. I don't feel that way about any particular matchup for Jessica Bagoon. I feel like on her mm. day, she has it in her to beat them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I. It's funny you brought up the the. the question posed by Chris Clary. I actually increasingly enjoy watching Jessica Bagula just play the sport. And and a lot of it is about her retrieving. I love it when she plays a big hitter. And you're right, she doesn't have these sort of million mile an hour legs going the way that Igus Fiontek does, but her, her anticipation and her manipulation of a forehand slice and a backhand slice and just popping it back onto your baseline, I think is a, is a, is a good watch. She's also got sneaky power, I think. She's quite a powerful player, but because it's very consistent power, it's not explosive power, it can, again, it can go a little unnoticed or under the radar, but um, it's it's very, very effective. Um, and I'm very interested in how she performs at this US Open. Um, just on just on Iga Svantec, it's, it's it's quite interesting how her... Her tournament played out. It was a very un Iga Svantec tournament in that she played all these really close, long matches. You know, just like I think it was a tight first set against Pliskova and then three sets against Mukova and against Collins. A lot of rain delays too that she had to sort of deal with. Like I think, I think maybe she was a little bit um, sort of mentally exhausted going into that match against against Jessica Bagula, but. Maybe again, not the worst thing in the world for her to be having some some tough matches. It does it does feel like she's she's not doing that thing of just winning easily or losing easily anymore. She she does seem to be mm. sort of since the since the latter stage of that French Open, she seems to be having a lot more sort of tougher matches. And I think I think in the same way that her 
2021 season was a really good backing up of her breakthrough in 2020, where she sort of really sort of was consistent and reached the, reached the second week of slams and, and sort of kicked on in that way without winning big. I feel like this has been a really good backing up of last year, where she took it to another level. It was always going to be hard to sustain that, but she started to do things that she wasn't doing before, like coming through tough matches and not being beaten really easily. And she still won a slam and she's still racking up wins. Like this has been a really, really good season for Igor Svante. And she can make it almost just as good if she were to win the US Open again. But it, it just feels like, yes, there have been some doubts maybe at times, a bit of stress, a bit of, we've sort of questioned, um, and she's questioned, you know, her sort of how much she loves being at the top of the sport. And all of that is still there in the background. And yet her results have just have just kept being so impressive. And it's it's taking it's taking great performances still to beat her. I feel like she's raised raised her floor again and yeah, it's even though she didn't win, it, it feels like she sort of gained something a little bit this week with all of those tough wins for Igor Mm. The doubles title in Montreal was won by Shuko Ayama and Ina Shibahara. They saved two match points to defeat number five seeds Desiree Kravchik and Demi Schurz, 6-4-4-6-13-11 in the final there. And yes, as alluded to earlier, last bit of news from uh, Montreal is that Bianca Andreescu announced on social media yesterday that she has a stress fracture in her back. Um, she obviously won't be playing in Cincinnati this week. I don't think she'll be playing the US Open. She hasn't said that, but I hope she's not playing the US Open. Uh, I know a little bit about stress fractures in backs and uh, rest is is that there's no there's no bending around that problem. You have to straight up bed rest the problem away. And if you don't, if it doesn't heal correctly, it can lead to a lot of other issues. So uh, I think we're just going to see another Bianca Andrescu absence from the sport. And that is devastating. She cannot catch a break, but we wish her well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Over to Toronto now where Yannick Sinner has finally broken his Masters 1000 duck. He beat Alex Dimonor 6-4. 6-1 in the final. A very impressive performance from him from the semi-final point onwards. From the point Tommy Paul beat Carlos Alcaraz, Matt sent a message to the group and said, Yannick Sinner needs to be winning this tournament now. This is a test for him. And he did. He blooming well did. And, um, yeah, very impressive. I know he didn't have to beat the absolute best of the best to to do it, but he beat who was there. Um, and those more unsexy analysis from me. He beat who was there, um, and I think this is I think this is significant for Yannick Sinner because I always talk about I'm always a bit of a dampener on the Yannick Sinner hype conversation because I think he's a very methodical tennis player in every way, in the micro sense and in the macro sense. I always felt like he would win a one thousand before he would. Win a slam. I always felt like he would reach a Grand Slam semi-final and a final before he would win a slam. I feel like he will incrementally tick off the milestones. I do think he'll get there, but I think people, naming no names, putting him in Grand Slam mixes for the past year, I think that is premature, personally. I still uh, am not sure I'm putting him in my US Open mix for for that same reason. I think he might still have one or two more milestones to tick off before he does that. But I think this is a significant one on that trajectory. Yeah. Um, I think I think that word incremental is, is a good uh, description of what Yannick Sinner is as a tennis player. Like every year he, he does something a little bit better, whether it's winning more matches or winning a big title or getting further in a slam. He, he he does do that every year. And I think his game improves every year. Uh, he's been tinkering with his serve for years. I don't think he served particularly well this week, but I think that shot will still get better. Um, and yeah, I just had this feeling as all these players were going out, Runa, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Rude, Djokovic wasn't there. And then the two big ones, Alcaraz losing, that that was maybe less of a thing for Sinner because he has at least shown that he can hang with Alcaraz and beat Alcaraz. The really big one I thought was Medvedev going out because he's got a he's got a mm. really bad record against Medvedev. He's got a Medvedev problem. Yeah. yeah. And then when he went out, I was like, okay, Yannick Sinner needs to win this. This is his chance to to win a Masters one thousand title for the first time. And he was very impressive. Um he, he had he had a 
individually, I would have expected him to win all the matches that he played. But collectively, that's a lot of good wins he had. Gael Monfils, Tommy Paul, Matteo Berrettini in the first round. He was helped by maybe Andy Murray's withdrawal of their match. And then he absolutely kind of took De Menor apart, really, in a way that he kind of always has in their matches. It was the first... The first time I think I really paid attention to Yannick Sinner was the back when I used to pay attention to the Next Gen Finals because uh, they played they played the final of that in in 2019 and Sinner absolutely just hit Dimonor off the court in that sort of fast and furious format and he's sort of done that whenever they've then met on tour I think I think Dimonor's only won one set against Sinner and it was close for the first set really you know Sinner kept getting the advantage and then giving it up it was close up until the point that I texted the group and said this match is surprisingly good (laughs) and then then Sinner poured a big bucket of cold water on it (laughs) yeah so if you can if you can pour water on my hype train I can pour water on yours (laughs) yeah he was he was just relentless you know he 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 hit such a big ball and Dimonor was was hanging with him by taking the ball early and doing what he does instead of deflecting and it was a really good watch but Sinner kept getting the break giving it up and then eventually he managed to sort of consolidate one of his breaks and then it felt like Dimonor realized that he had to just go out of his comfort zone to try and live with Sinner and he couldn't the errors came and, and Sinner took over in that in that second set completely um and yeah just just a an important marker which he will hope will be a sort of inflection point and will sort of propel him to yeah getting a really big win at a slam and and reaching a first slam final perhaps at the US Open because as you said I think I think maybe I'm in more of a rush for Yannick Sinner's career than he is like I he only wants to qualify for Turin Max. right exactly those are his goals <laughs> this year, yeah. that's the goal yeah. <laughs> like I do think I do think he would be very content with getting to the US Open final. You know, obviously gutted if he ended up losing it, but equally, like, that's real progress. And that that would be progress. That would be a good sign. He, he probably does have a good perspective on his career. And as I said, he is still making improvements. It's not like he's tailed off or leveled off. They, they're not, like, really huge Alcaraz-level bursts. But, you know, who does that? Carlos Alcaraz. Like, I feel like Sinner is developing at a level that he's comfortable with and he is going to get there and a a week like this where he's winning matches that he needs to be winning is just another sort of step on that road I suppose I'm fully expecting David to come in now and tell us why Yannick Sinner is in the mix for the US Open even though as Matt's explained I don't think Yannick Sinner thinks he's in the mix for the US Open (laughs) I, I agree with that analysis that he puts limits on himself, which I'm not sure are helpful to 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 his prospects of actually achieving the ultimate goal. And therefore, that methodical nature that you reference will probably mean that he's more likely to win one in two or three years' time when he actually is sort of backing himself to go do that. Uh, I, I think there is something to that, but I'm not sure that he can fast-track that because of just who he is. Maybe he just isn't that guy that can that can do it, even if he's told he should. Maybe if he had a, a Brad Gilbert hype man in his corner who was just telling him to shut up and stop that chat, you know, and get on with it, 
maybe that would hurry him up. But but I don't think so. I think he's got the sort of coaching team that suits his personality. He's he's a methodical human being with a fast twitch, truly explosive game. And I think the the two wins that that got him to well the three wins that got him to this title at the end totally sum up who Yannick Sinner is at his best. You know, he played players that are quite similar to him in Tommy Paul and, and Alex Dimonor, but he's just plus one, plus two better than they are. You know, he's got bigger strokes. They tried to do what he does to him. They just tried to stand on the baseline, redirect, use their speed, try to out-hit him. When he's on, he's too good for them. He's too good for them all, other than Djokovic, who's the best in the world ever at that particular brand of tennis. And Carlos Alcaraz, who's otherworldly when he's absolutely on, um, and I think I think if if Sinner plays like he did the last few days, without injuries, there's really only those couple of players I think that can beat him in tennis terms. And then there's the mental hold that Medvedev has over him, uh, which which I, I'm I'm also I don't completely understand why. Tennis-wise, it's such a bad matchup for Sinner. It, it clearly is one, but I don't really understand what it is that's the problem. Um, so, you know, that's almost as big a hurdle for him, I think, as as getting to that next step in Grand Slams is. Can I beat Tanner Medvedev one day? Mm. I do think with with Medvedev, you need a a change of pace, a bit of variety, I, I always think. Mm. And that was something I thought Dimonor did really well against uh, Medvedev. He, he actually used his, his slice backhand, which, you know, isn't isn't an amazing shot, but it's pretty good. And it just unsettled Medvedev a little bit, changed the rhythm. I feel like Sinner's matches against Medvedev have been very one pace, and it was just a sort of back and forth from the baseline, and, and Medvedev's really, really comfortable in, in those matches. Um but yeah, I agree. I, I think Sinner's top level right now is probably only behind Alcaraz and, and Novak Djokovic, and then there's and then there's the block with with Medvedev. He he pulled out the um, the drop shot a few times yesterday in the final, didn't mm. he, against Alex Dimonor at, at surprise moments? And it was really really effective, and I, I think the drop shot is very effective against Daniel Medvedev. Um, yeah. See. See his matches against Carlos Alcaraz and his return position on a well general court position on a on another planet. Um, so I wonder if that's something that he'll continue to work on with a view to <clears throat> finding the Medvedev kryptonite. I'd love to see him more comfortable at the nets, and I feel like it's in him. Um, there's there's so many moments where he's mid court, and you you. I'm always leaning my body towards the TV, kind of urging him to lean his body weight forward and come in. And he, it, the instinct just isn't there. Um, but again, he's methodical. He's got Darren Cahill in his corner, who without question will know that that is something to be worked on in his game. And to be that good and yet still have obvious areas of improvement is is a great place to be. And Yannick... I feel pretty confident you're going to get to Turin. So, <laughs> can I ask why, you a question? Why even bother both? playing the US Open? <laughs> goals. The, just on the Izzy in the mix question mark, I, I feel like with Yannick Sinner, I'm really fascinated by his US Open draw because of all we've just been talking about with Daniel Medvedev. Is it somewhat draw dependent? 
if he happened to end up with Carlos Alcaraz as his maybe semi-final opponent who he's beaten before, um, but but avoiding Djokovic and Medvedev, do you, do you feel like that would swing your view? Not for me. Matt? I mean, I guess the chances are he would still have to meet beat one of those even if he was on the other side of the draw he might have to beat them in the final I, I keep I, I know it's Djokovic but I'm still thinking the last time that we saw him play he he was bad against Djokovic wasn't he in that semi-final that was bad his forehand completely yeah. deserted him he would very he well have lost he would very well have lost even if he had played his best okay it's Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon but that worries me. That worries me that he didn't show up for that match. And that was the last Grand Slam match I saw him play. So I, 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 I don't think I'll be talking about having those doubts in a year or two's time. But right now, I still have those doubts. Yeah, I think that's fair. Did we learn anything new about Alex de Menor this week? And maybe, well, this might be a stretch, but I feel like... Um, we could probably put Alex, the, the Alex de Menor and Lyudmila Samsonova conversation together. Like, great week for them. Does it mean anything? I, I know I you, both, it, I, you both love the does it, does it mean anything question. I do, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go on, I, 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 I actually think that it slightly reshapes the way I look at de Menor in in that I didn't think he'd be in this final. Um, really, I suppose I was looking actually at the role of honor and the the finals of the last twenty years before we came on, and there was there was a a spell of fourteen out of sixteen champions that were all the big four uh, in in Canada, and but aside from that dominance, it's it has been one of those tournaments that has had some unlikely champions and unlikely finalists, you know. Um, I think Pablo Corina Busta was one. Um, it, it, when you go to Cincinnati, there was Borna Chorich, I think, last year. Um, I can't tell but, you, David, the time I spent this week trying to recall who was the champion in the men's champion in Canada. Yeah, last, last year. No, it's, it's true. And and if you go back before before the Big Four came along and started doing what they did, you had a Chris Woodruff winning the, the title, who was an American I remember well. But my word, if somebody had told me he was going to reach the final one of those and win it, and he beat some proper players to do it, so you know. But really, it's I would not have expected Demonor to to reach this final. And particularly given the players he had to beat to do it, and and if you, and and I I didn't see the Medvedev match. I was busy enjoying my holiday, um, but I'm very interested to hear that he used a slightly different tactic to try to overcome Medvedev, and I think that's a really interesting development in itself. Yeah, I think I think Dimonor is another one, and he, he, again, he kind of said this in in his press conference that he he's aware of sort of some of the the chat around him and and this idea of a ceiling and I think he he's out to sort of prove people wrong a bit and he and when he plays with that slight chip on his shoulder I think he can I think he can be really effective and that is something that he has done well this year beaten more top players he's got wins this year over Runa Rublev Medvedev Fritz and Nadal going back to 
going back to the United Cup as well. And he, he'd kind of been a little bit stuck, I suppose, around 20 in the world. He's, he's now made a, a jump, quite a big jump, up to up to 12 in the world. It's his, it's his career high. Like a good goal for him now would be try and qualify for the ATP finals. You know, he is, he's on the cusp, I think. He's, he's around 10 or 11 in the race, I think. And that's a really good year for Alex Dumanor so far. And... It was tricky because there was a lot of matches that he probably should have lost. Like, you know, if you look at the opponent's perspective, Fritz was 5-1 set point up on him in the first set and didn't win that set. Medvedev had leads in both sets and let them slip. So he sort of fought his way through to that final Mm. and there were matches that he definitely could have lost, but he did win them. And I feel like he generally this year has performed better against top players than he had done in in the past and it was just a, a, a huge revelation to me that he'd never even reached a quarter final of a Masters 1000 he'd lost he'd lost 16 last 16 matches in a row at this level that wow. is absolutely oh crazy when you think of you know some players who will have a just have a week and get to a quarter or semi at a Masters 1000 the fact that one of the most consistent players on tour had never managed to do that was was kind of mind-boggling so that's a big breakthrough for him just just to be able to do that and obviously he went all the way to the final um with Samsonova I mean again crazily good week uh two top five wins also beat Bengchik also beat Zhang Shim Wen <laughs> I don't understand Samsonova. I think she's just going to be one of these players who comes in and out and has great weeks. I mean, she hadn't actually beaten that many top, top players before. More top five wins this week than she had in her whole career. But I think she's most dangerous against big players. And I think she gets up for those matches. And I think, yeah, she's going to she's going to be a bit inexplicable. She's going to have some weeks where she's bombing out and hitting a load of unforced errors and you don't really notice her and then she's going to pop up and be a huge danger and I'm not sure not sure we're ever really going to get a grasp on on when that will be she's going to she's going to remain a predictions nightmare I suspect brilliant absolutely brilliant (laughs) um do you do you remember was it three I feel like it was three ish years ago possibly two and one of the questions in our year-long predictions at the start of the year was who, in what order will Dumanor, Shapovalov, and Orgelia Seem finish up in the rankings this year? Well, Dumanor is now ranked ahead of Felix Orgelia Seem and Denis Shapovalov and is on the up, whereas the other two were very much on the down at the moment. And I just, I remember that absolutely nobody was picking Dumanor to be. Um, to be the standout of those three. And obviously this is just a moment in time. They're all still very young, but I still think it's, it's tremendous for him to be ranked where he is, higher than Nick Kyrgios has ever been ranked right now. Um, and my last annoying question for you on this subject is I'm just looking at the rankings now. Uh, Tommy Paul and Alex de Menor are now ranked 13 and 12 respectively. Um, and there are only 70 points separating them. Who's more likely to qualify for Turin? Dimonor. Where are they in the race? Yes. Uh, That's I... a fair question, isn't it? <laughs> That's a fair question. <laughs> we had it out this whole section. 
<laughs> Toby Paul is 12th in L Race. And Alex de Menor is 10th in L Race. L Race. And points-wise, oh my goodness, maths on the spot. There are about 160 points separating them. I think you... probably I would back Dimonor. I feel like I would back Dimonor to to maybe rack up some more points in that in that sort of post US Open indoor period. I could feel I feel like he could play like four weeks in a row and and just sort of rack up quite a few points in that yes. period. Um, point, yeah. I, I'm still not sure if either of them will actually qualify, but. Probably Edge Edge goes to Dimonor, which would you know, considering Tommy Paul reached that Australian Open semi final in the year, would sort of back up this this idea of Dimonor just doing a lot of winning, just generally. Carlos Alcaraz losing to Tommy Paul patchy week for him. There were still moments of the spectacular. the 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 ceiling the ceiling was Alcaraz level high, but the floor was quite low this week it was very up and down any concerns for Carlos Alcaraz ahead of his first US Open title defence well if he plays like that he ain't winning the US Open that much is is uh, very clear I just I feel like what the discussion you had earlier Matt about Igor Swiatek playing a lot of three set matches may end up doing her good at the US Open I feel the same for Alcaraz I think not necessarily playing every single match all the time having to work on the game he let's be honest the the greats peak at the biggest events that's that's how they win all these grand slam tournaments okay the big four just shared them all between them uh, every single week more or less Uh, that's how great they were but I just feel like this is work in progress stuff for these very top players and and maybe not being at your best now will mean you're at, at his best during the US Open but he better be because that was not not close to good enough Yannick Sinner would have destroyed him this week yeah maybe maybe Carlos Alcaraz is is just going to win the next 12 slams, but just keep losing to Tommy Paul in, in Canada every year. Because, I mean... Absolutely. <laughs> Tommy Paul beat him last year as well. And, and yeah, I mean, Alcaraz was nowhere near his level this, this week. Juan Carlos Ferrero wasn't there. I, I do read something into that. Like, I know, I know Alcaraz has won matches and done plenty well enough without Juan Carlos Ferrero in his box. But that is such an important, strong relationship. We, we know how much... Alcaraz is always looking over to that box and I felt like he wasn't he wasn't playing that well and also his attitude wasn't quite as good as it normally is he was getting pretty frustrated he just slammed his racket down at one point and he was sort of telling himself what's happening I can't play it was just it was, it was quite negative in a way that normally he's he's a lot more positive I suppose but yeah I, I don't have I don't have concerns for Alcaraz going in going into the US Open off the back of that and and Tommy Paul is a player who again Chris Clary was tweeting about in terms of among the current crop of American players Tommy Paul is the one that sort of comes out in all of their sort of metrics as the best athlete you know even ahead of like Tiafo and Fritz and Shelton you know Tommy Paul is such a good athlete and actually if he's having a good day with his forehand with his movement and his backhand he can hang and live with Carlos Alcaraz and 
he's a great shot maker as well. And yeah, he, he took advantage of, of Aaron Cross, not at his best, but Tommy Paul's a very, very good player with a with a very high level as well. It wasn't like Alcaraz crashed out to a nobody. But then, you know, he, I remember us thinking, oh, is, is it bad that he's lost to Fabian Marajan on the, on the eve of the French Open? And, you know, now we, no one even remembers that match. Like, it, it, is, it is still about the slams for Alcaraz. Marcelo Aravalo and Jean-Julien Roger beat Joe Salisbury and Rajiv Ram 6-3-6-1 to win the doubles title in Toronto, their first Masters 1000 title as a team. Alcaraz is in the top half of the draw in Cincinnati, along with Sitsipas Rude and Rublev. The bottom half sees Novak Djokovic's return to the USA for the first time since the 2021 US Open. Uh, Runa Medvedev and Sinner all in there as well. In the women's event in Cincy, the top half features Svantec Garcia, defending champion Garcia, Rabakina and Goff. And the bottom half is Zachary Pagula Jabur, obviously her return for the first time since the Wimbledon final. And Sabalenka coming up on the tennis podcast over the course of the next week. We have hashtag content to burn for you. Uh, for friends of the pod, we have US Open Relived, the Kim Clijsters story. That is being recorded and, w- recorded and will be up for you this week. Uh, on our main feed, we will have our regular Cincinnati catch-up show on Thursday. That'll be up for you. We'll have our review show on Monday uh, that Matt and I will be recording in uh, Heathrow Airport. What could go wrong? And then David will be travelling to New York on Thursday. Thursday and then it all kicks off in earnest in New York for the final Grand Slam of the season. Also in New York for the final Grand Slam of the season will be our two winners of our Wilson competition. Two friends of the tennis podcast who are each going to the US Open courtesy of Matt's sponsor Wilson who are also <laughs> the official ball. They also sponsor the uh, the ball at the US Open. That's neither here nor there. The official ball <laughs> of the US Open and our winners are Dawn Miller and Meta Sorensen who is originally from Denmark but now living in Atlanta. So congratulations to them and do enjoy your time at the US Open. I feel confident you will because it is very hard not to. Uh, We have our mascot for this episode, Shady. Uh, Shady is owned by Jesse Flanders. Shady is a 10-year-old terrier mix. He's a graduate of the Arkansas Paws in Prison program, which pairs shelter dogs with prison inmates for training. Love that. Professional trainers work with the inmates and animals several times a week, and after eight weeks, the pups graduate and go to their forever homes. Um, And Shady is here wearing a bandana uh, that says, Ball is life. on it and it's got pictures of tennis balls um really love that about shady i've actually uh, registered billy jean this week as a pets therapy dog to go into prisons and care homes and hospitals and stuff and generally spread cuddles and joy she hasn't actually passed the assessment yet so oh, she will. i won't say oh. too much more <laughs> I back her. <laughs> but I've registered her to be assessed. So um, watch this space and Shady slash Jesse, if you have any tips for me for that assessment, uh, please let me know because Shady has obviously been doing great work and he is 
gorgeous absolutely gorgeous so thank you jesse for being a friend of the pod and bringing shady into our lives we have our mascots david has Maisie. i've got xenia matt has darwin Billy Jean is sponsored by Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. I will be mentioning that uh, casually when the assessor <laughs> comes round. Um, we have our top folks and executive producers, Jamie, Hannah and Drew. And shout outs, along with David Law, are back. Yes, we start with Katie Chalton, who is in St Albans in the UK. Hello, Katie. Like Hi, Katie. Katie Bolter. Katie's done us a favour there by being a Katie rather than a Kate. Yes, Kates we struggle with. Kates, Kates we always end up naming Katies. Yep, Katie McNally, Katie Bolter. <laughs> Katies are all over the shop. Mm. Um, but not, not this Katie, there's only one of you. Uh, thank you very much for being a friend of the pod. Yeah. We also have Ray Houston Millet, who is originally from... Derry, now living in Bristol, and Ray is uh, Carter's owner from from last year. Mascot oh, fame. Oh, fantastic. We love Carter. Um, thank you, Ray. Uh, tennis Rays, David. There must Ooh. have been some kicking around in the 90s. Yeah, or earlier, when it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was a more popular name. Sorry, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Ray's go- surely Ray is going to make a comeback as a name the way that Arthur has for instance but we'll I can't see. think of any so sorry Ray <laughs> I can't think of any look you, you, you're the only tennis I, Ray that we can I, I, think, I can of, think of so you know thanks for being a Ray friend. Raymond that I don't really want to give give a uh, Ray Moore yeah yeah, mm. yeah. you forced us there we're, David we're, sorry Ray I feel like we've let Ray down with this. we've let you down Ray <laughs> I'm going to read out Ray's little Um, story. My earliest tennis memory is the 1993 Wimbledon final. I was a big Jana Novotna fan after this. And very fitting that my first introduction to the tennis podcast was a friend telling me about the Novotna episode. Oh, I love that. Thank you. You've you've saved your own shout out, Ray. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Who's our final shout out for, Matt? Our final one is David Collar. From La Tour de Pay in Switzerland. Ooh. Right, Dave. Like David Goffin. <laughs> yes. Yep. And Ferrer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Do, we have, do we have a blurb about David? Uh, I started listening to the podcast, he says, when Matt was still grad Matt, I was a super commuter for two years with a weekly five-hour train ride between Paris and Zurich. Your friendly voices kept me company on the countless, lonely, tiring journeys. So even if I don't know you, I'm grateful for you all for having brought cheer and warmth to some joyless moments. Happy ending alert. Those times being apart from my family are long behind me, but I still enjoy your virtual company just as much. Oh, David, that's so nice. Thank you. Really, really nice. Um, And actually, uh, a nice moment, actually, I think, to to lead on to a final bonus shout out. David, um, I think you should be the one to pay tribute to Greg Sharko, who has announced that he's going to be retiring from tennis this year. Um, 
a name that anybody working in tennis will know very, very well. An incredible contributor to the sport over many, many decades and someone we've all had the pleasure of working alongside, but you in particular. Yeah, Greg is somebody who's worked at the ATP, I believe, since 1986. And he was the communications manager at the Queen's Club when I worked at my first ever tennis tournament in 1996. So he'd already been going 10 years when I showed up and um, as a very, very nervous uh, 22-year-old and, and basically tried to sort of follow him around and learn how to do his job, a job that I didn't even know existed, working between the players and the media and in, in order to help them get along and get together and do their press conferences. And, and Greg would forever be coming up and saying, why don't you just go and um, give this little bit of information about Luke Jensen that I've got to the British media because they're, they're going to have a story in the next round because they're playing the British guys, et cetera, et cetera. He, that's how his mind would work. And it was always about something that he, he knew that he'd figured out might help the media do their jobs. And there's not many that I can think of that think like that within the sport, just sort of selflessly going out there trying to help the media to do their jobs and and I cannot think of really anybody in the sport quite like Greg who nobody that I've ever met has got a bad word to say about he he is just a, a gem of a human being a lovely bloke he has been in my view passed over time and time again when good promotion opportunities might come up and he never complained he just got on with his job he did it to the absolute best of his ability he did it brilliantly all of us in the media valued his contributions and I think that that kind of communication style is not valued highly enough um, and actually it's it's the one that makes journalists want to speak and write more favorably about a about a sport because he's out there telling everybody its best side but telling it from the heart and with the facts and the statistics to back it up um and yeah i mean that is service to the sport that he has given he's loved every minute of it at the same time don't get me wrong he's it's not like he's uh he's hated doing that job he's loved it um Never ever get in your get into a situation where you challenge him to an eat off, which I did in uh, two thousand in America, um, and got absolutely eaten under the table at a, one of the most disgusting eateries I've ever had the misfortune to uh, attend. And he ate five plates of all you can eat spaghetti to my three, um, but absolutely lovely bloke, and um, you know. I, I hope whatever he's doing next, he, he, he enjoys because he's, he's a top man. Hear, hear. Yeah, never made it about him, did he? No ego whatsoever, which is unbelievably rare in that kind of role. Um, look, there are lots of good people doing that kind of stuff, but so often it's about being mates with the players, isn't it? You know, having their phone number in your in your iPhone, Um and that's never what it's been about for, for Greg, although I'm sure he's got a more impressive black book, little black book than than anyone else in the sport. So we will miss you, Greg, but um, we wish you very well in whatever your retirement holds. And that's it for us on this edition of the Tennis Podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular 
Midway Cincinnati pod. We'll be back uh, later in the week as well for Friends of the Tennis Podcast with our Kim Clijsters story. And we'll be back next Monday, of course, from Heathrow Airport. (laughs) We'll speak to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.